Last week we looked in detail at the life of Paul, who is the author of Ephesians, and we found that the book of Ephesians is called an epistle, which simply means a letter. It's a really, really fun word to say, so we all added the word epistle to our vocabulary. And in this case, the book of Ephesians is a letter to the church in Ephesus that Paul helped start. He had just finished sharing last week with the Ephesians that there's this great mystery that's been revealed. And this great mystery is that God all along intended to save not only Jews, but Gentiles, people that weren't Jewish as well. And for the time before Jesus was on the earth, people weren't able to understand this is what God was gonna do. They weren't able to understand this is what all the prophecies in the Old Testament were pointing toward. But now, this mystery's been revealed that salvation is for everyone through Jesus Christ. Anyone can seek God and anyone can find God through Jesus. He's just finished explaining that this message, this mission is his special calling. He calls it his special grace that he's been called to, to share this message with the Gentiles, the non-Jews. So let's dive into Ephesians starting in verse eight. Verse eight, chapter three of Ephesians. It says, to me who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given. As we said before, this grace is just the message that he was given. He's saying, I've been given this specific message and mission by Jesus, but I want you to notice how Paul refers to himself. He doesn't say, to me, his holiness, the apostle Paul. He doesn't say, to me, Paul the great, or he doesn't say, to me, Paul, the most prolific church planner of all time, still undefeated. He just says to me, who am less than the least of the saints. Wow, that's quite a title to give yourself. And I believe what you see at work here is the secret to Paul's effectiveness in ministry. What Paul was able to do through the power of the Holy Spirit goes against every rule we have of modern ministry. He could go into a city, spend three weeks there, leave, And there would be a church, and there would be a church a year later that was bigger, and two years later it would be bigger. Today we would ask questions like, where's where's your leadership development strategy? What's your assimilation system? What, uh, What are you doing for small groups? Three weeks, go in, preach the gospel, people are genuinely saved, leave, send them tops, two letters, and there's a church. It's, it's ridiculous. He's breaking every rule. He has no idea, apparently, how church planning works, but apparently somehow it works. He turns the world upside down. Paul understood that none of us deserve the grace or the mercy or the love of Jesus. He, he really got that. And I wonder for us, do we understand how blessed we are that Jesus loves us? Do we have any idea how blessed we are that he loves us? It's a mind-blowing truth. And Paul understood the reality that Jesus hadn't improved his life. Jesus had brought him from death to life. It was that extreme. That's the theme running through the book of Ephesians. You've been brought from death into life, and not just life, but into the riches of Christ. You've gone from being in the literal worst place you could be to being in the literal best place you could be. You've gone from being in a place that's actually worse than you could ever imagine to a place that's better than you could ever imagine. That's the extreme of what's happened. 
Paul understood that. And, and I don't want you to think for a second Paul had low self-esteem. He wasn't one of these guys where somebody would say, hey, you know, great message today. And he would be like, don't praise me. Praise him. That's a pet peeve of mine when people do that. Because nobody's ever coming up to another person saying, I think you're God. They're just saying, hey, I appreciate you using your gift. So if anybody ever thanks you for using your gift, they're crediting God for working through you. Just say thank you. Don't, don't be that person who's like, mm-mm, no praise to me. Praise to him. Just say thank you. They know that God is real. They appreciate you using your gift. So if somebody had come up to Paul, they would have found not a guy who was like, no, I'm, 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 I'm horrible. That message was horrible. That, that uh, raising guy from the dead, oh, it's just, just awful. I'm embarrassed by my performance. Paul wouldn't do that because this is the same Paul who said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul didn't have a confidence issue. Paul understood the reality of the situation. In fact, he loved to boast, except Paul would always boast about Jesus and what Jesus had done for him and what Jesus was doing through him. Paul loved to boast, but never about himself, always about Jesus, always, always about Jesus. Paul understood this. He understood that he was nothing and Christ is everything. The secret to his ministry effectiveness was his grasp of the truth that he was nothing and Jesus is everything. And get this, that if Christ, who is everything, was in him, then anything was possible. Anything was possible. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 and 10, Paul says, For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. So you're thinking, oh, Paul, you're starting to brag. And then he says, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. He said, God's grace did all the work that you see. Anytime you see fruit from my life, anytime you see ministry and you go, wow, Paul, you're so effective. He says, that's God working through me. That's the grace of God working through me. In 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul titles himself the chief of sinners. Chief of sinners. Not deacon, not super bishop. His parking spot had chief of sinners on it. This is how Paul introduces himself. And the closer you get to Jesus, the more aware you become of your sin. The closer you get to Jesus, the more aware you become of the incredible gap that exists between who you really are and who he really is. And the more you see yourself for who you really are, the more you appreciate the grace of God. It is simply not true that the more time you spend with Jesus, the greater view you have of yourself. The truth is you get an increasingly lower view of yourself. That's why Jesus said in his kingdom, the last shall be first. And the reason is the last are the people who really understand the reality of the situation. That he is so much holier. He is so much more worthy than we are. And Paul understood this. He understood this intimately. So are you growing in your appreciation of his grace? Or as time passes, are you beginning to think that you deserve it more because you're a better person now? Are you growing in your appreciation of his grace? If you're walking with Jesus, I, I guarantee you will be. I guarantee you will be. We posted this on our Facebook page this week. It's a great quote by J.R. Briggs who said, the entrance exam for Christianity is admitting you are a failure. That's the entrance exam for Christianity. 
Don't think you need Jesus. Well, you're not ready for him. Think you can be good enough? Well, you're not ready for him. Has the Holy Spirit opened your eyes to understand you have no hope outside of him? Now you're ready for Jesus. That's the entrance exam for Christianity. As you pray and look for opportunities to invite people to Easter next Sunday, I want to encourage you to use your discernment, the Holy Spirit inside of you. If somebody thinks their whole life is together, thinks they're the bee's knees, the cat's pajamas, you probably shouldn't invite them because they're not ready for the gospel. They're not ready for the gospel. What God has a way of doing is using life circumstances to get you to the place where you begin to realize, I can't do this on my own. There has to be something else. There has to be something more. I'm breaking apart at the seams. It can happen through pressure in a marriage, strife in a family, problems with a child, problems at work, financial pressure. Think about your life and ask God to give you eyes to see who's being brought to that place by God. Because nobody has the testimony, my life was awesome, and then I realized it could be even more awesome, and that's why I became a Christian. Adults who come to know Jesus always have the testimony, man, I thought I had it all together, and then this happened in my life. Then this started happening in my life, and I realized I didn't really have it all together. So bring those people to church. Invite those people to church because you never know what God can do because he's already working on them through their life situations. It's a simple two-step process. Through, Through life experiences, we begin to see ourselves as we truly are. And then through the gospel being proclaimed, we begin to see Jesus as he truly is. If you only see yourself as you truly are, you become very depressed and very hopeless. Because nobody's ever really gone introspective, looked at who they really are, looked at their own motivations and gone, you know what, I've come to the conclusion. I'm pretty great. I mean, I'm pretty awesome. Spent some time meditating, little self-reflection, and I've realized I'm, I'm a great guy. Really, really good guy. It's usually not the outcome of deep, genuine introspection about your motives. And if you only see Christ as he truly is, you'll become depressed and hopeless because you'll realize that Look, look at him. Look how far away he is. Look how out of reach he is. That's how you'll feel. You'll feel depressed and hopeless. But if you're able to grasp the truth that Christ wants to come and dwell in you, then all things are possible, and you're filled with the hope of glory. Anything is possible. If Christ will come and make his home inside of you and I, then anything is possible. Any gap can be crossed. Any gap can be crossed. Paul has no problem calling himself the least because he's come to the place where he understands that it's not about him. It's about people thinking he's awesome. It's not about people honoring him. It's about Jesus being honored. Paul didn't care about his reputation. He cared about the reputation of Christ. Continuing in verse eight, why was this special message, this special grace given to Paul? He says that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ. Let's unpack this a little bit, because there's some really good stuff in here. He calls what we have in Jesus unsearchable riches, and what Paul is saying is you have no idea Even the most mature Christian, you literally cannot grasp what you have in Christ. 
And when you see it, when you arrive at your eternal dwelling place in the presence of God, what you will have will blow your mind. You have no idea. It's unsearchable. It's inexhaustible. It can't be put in a room. You will spend the rest of eternity trying to grasp what you have in Christ. You'll never reach the end of it, ever. You'll never get bored. The glory of God, the riches of Christ are unsearchable. They're inexhaustible. And you notice that Paul's message was all about Jesus. It's all he ever talked about. Jesus, 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 Jesus. The gospel. And the reason for that is that everything flows out of the gospel. You don't ever want to let your ministry or see your church become about anything other than the gospel. Because the truth is, the gospel drives those who are called to go to the hungry. The gospel drives those who are called to counsel people in hurting marriages to do that. The gospel drives worshipers to be worshipers. The gospel drives prayer warriors to be prayers. The gospel drives all of those things. It's the center of everything. Jesus is the center of everything. Absolutely everything. And then Paul says, to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery. Paul's saying, I've been called to let you know what it means to be a part of this. What it means to experience this and live it out and get to share in this mystery that salvation is for you. I've been called to explain to you what that is. We talked about last week, that, but Paul tells us again that this mystery is for everyone. He says, from the beginning of the ages, it's been hidden in God, meaning that God hasn't let people understand it until now, but now he's revealed the truth of this mystery. That's why people didn't get it in the Old Testament. In 1 Peter, it says that even angels desired to look into this mystery. Even the angels had no idea where this all was going. They had no idea. They saw Eden, they saw the world fall, and they were kind of thinking, well, this has gone horribly wrong. I guess God will just judge everybody and they'll burn forever in hell and that'll be that. They had no idea what was going on. They wished that they could understand it. They must have grieved profoundly when Jesus was crucified. They must have been perplexed why the Father was allowing this to happen. And then when Jesus rose from the grave, I cannot imagine the praise that erupted in heaven because even the angels didn't see that one coming. I can't imagine what happened in heaven when Jesus rose from the dead. That's why Satan worked to crucify Jesus on the cross. Have you ever thought, if Satan knew where this was going, why did he play along? He had no idea that Jesus was capable of coming back from the dead. He thought when Jesus died, he had won. Jesus had been defeated. That's why he did it. He had no idea what was coming, no idea. God made it a mystery. And just as a point of interest, notice that it says, God who created all things through Jesus Christ. Of the Trinity, Jesus is the creator. Jesus is the creator. This is just one of the places in Scripture where it tells us Jesus is the creator. And this is one more angle on the gospel that is absolutely staggering. It's one more angle on the incarnation, Jesus becoming human, that is just staggering because it means that the creator put his feet on the dirt that he made. He breathed the air from the atmosphere that he created. He balanced the elements perfectly. 
and he was breathing the air that he himself created. And then he allowed himself to be crucified by the people that he had created. People who he knit together and made in their mother's wombs. The people whose days he numbered before they were even born. How do you wrap your head around that? How do you wrap your head around him breathing life into the same people that would kill him? That's why when Jesus is on the cross, he cries out, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And he meant it. They have no idea. They, they cannot even grasp what they're doing. Have no idea. So who would even think that a scenario like that would even be possible? It's staggering. No one could even make that up. There's no one like Jesus. There's no one like Jesus. Paul keeps going in verse 10. He's told us he's been given this special grace so he can proclaim it. And I love this. Why does he need to proclaim it? Verse 10, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says, I'm telling you this so that you can become the church. And the purpose of the church is to proclaim what Jesus Christ has done. That's the purpose of the church. Paul calls God's plan the manifold wisdom of God. Manifold just means many-sided. Paul says this because God planned salvation before he even created the world. God planned the cross before the first human beings were created in Eden, before Adam and Eve sinned. He had it all laid out because he's that wise. So you gotta get this. Paul is saying, I'm telling you this so the church can make this known. That's why I'm telling you this. But here's where it gets fun. Paul starts boasting in the Lord and he says, made known to who? Paul says the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. And that phrase is simply referring to every demonic spirit, every demon, even Satan himself. Paul says, I'm telling you this so that you can go tell them. Jesus is one. That's what Paul is literally saying. He's saying, go tell the principalities and powers. Go tell them that Jesus is alive. Go proclaim it. Go let them know that their authority has been broken. It's been shattered in Jesus. Go tell death that even he has to take a knee and bow down in the presence of Jesus now. Go tell addiction. Go tell depression. Go tell sickness. Go tell anxiety. Go tell pain. Go tell hurt. Go tell lust. Go tell brokenness that Jesus is alive and because he's alive you don't have authority anymore and you need to bow down in the presence of Jesus that's what Paul is saying thank you I was hoping somebody was going to amen there that's what Paul is saying he said you need to understand what's happened here roles have been flipped in the spiritual realm forever and where there was once authority for the powers of darkness there is now only authority for Jesus Christ that's what Paul is saying he says go tell him go tell him Go speak it, go proclaim it, go live it. Jesus has won. In Colossians 2.10, Jesus is called the head of all principality and power. Later in that same chapter, Paul gets to boasting about what Jesus has done on the cross. In verse 14 of Colossians 2, it says, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. 
In Ephesians 1, we read about his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things, how many things? Some things, a few things, all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus is greater than everyone and everything. Know this, there is power in the name of Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus. At simply the name of Jesus, the darkness flees. Evil gets on its knees because when you speak the name of Jesus, you are saying, there's a hierarchy here. There's Jesus, and then there's everything else. And I believe you fall under everything else. So it's time to get on your knees, because Jesus is overall. That's what happens when you speak the name of Jesus. Whatever your struggle is, Jesus is greater. So when you pray, don't make it about you, because you're not greater. Jesus is greater. When you pray, you need to thank Jesus that he's greater than whatever you're praying for. Jesus, thank you that you're greater than this addiction. Jesus, thank you that you're greater than this bitterness. Jesus, thank you that you're greater than this hurt. And what you're doing is you're proclaiming it because those things that you're facing, they don't just come out of nowhere. This is the truth, this is real reality. There's a spiritual dimension, there's a spiritual war going on, there's an enemy that wants your soul, that wants to destroy you. And so when you pray, don't pray ignorantly. Don't pray like this is just a rough day. Recognize what's going on and speak Jesus into that situation. That's how we pray. We stand on the authority of Jesus, the authority of Jesus. He's greater than anything. He's greater than everything. Jesus is greater. It needs to be at the forefront of our prayer vocabulary. Picking it up towards the end of verse 11 Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Access to what? The presence of God and relationship with God. Last week we discussed the eight primary dispensations that flow through scripture. These are eight different ways that God relates to us. And we found out that none of them work except for grace. The only way we can relate to God successfully is through Jesus, is through the dispensation of grace. And that's the age that we get to live in. Before the cross, we were judged on our own merit. That's why the Israelites were cool with Moses going up to meet God on the mountain. Because most of them were thinking, I'm pretty sure if I go up, he's going to kill me. I know what I was thinking about 10 minutes ago. Not really looking to go into the presence of God right now. You go, Moses. Thumbs up we'll be waiting right here. You had to go on your own merit. But now the Father says, you don't have to be afraid. You can come and meet me yourself. What, what, about, my, what about my sin? What, what about that and this and, oh yeah, that thing? Now the Father says, Jesus has taken care of that. Yeah, even that. Even that. Jesus has taken care of that. Come on, let's talk. Come meet with me. Come be with me. We're all going to have an audience with God the Father one day. And when we do, we'll either stand before him on our own merits, our own goodness, or we'll point to Jesus and say, um, yeah, I'm with him. 
I'm with him. That's my strategy. Why should I let you in? I'm with him. Come on in. That's my entire strategy for getting into heaven. I'm with him. I'm with Jesus. If you put your faith in him, though, you can have an audience with him right now. You don't have to wait for eternity. You can be with God now the same way you will in light of eternity, which is through Jesus, through the grace of Jesus. That's why we can come with boldness and confidence, knowing that we have access. So don't, don't having been saved by grace, don't try and act now like you have to be good enough to be in the presence of God. Don't try and act like you can be good enough to be in the presence of God now. You never were, but Jesus is. And he's our access into the presence of God. In verse 13, Paul says, Therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is for your glory. He doesn't want anyone looking at him in prison and saying, Paul, you know, uh, your ministry is great, but I can't help noticing that you're in prison. This tends to undermine the attractiveness of the message. You're in prison. He doesn't want anybody thinking this because Paul would say, yeah, I'm in prison, but, but I'm in prison for Jesus. Thank God that my life has that much meaning. Thank God that I've been called to proclaim something as important as the gospel. There's a Francis Chan quote that I absolutely love. It sums up the life of Paul and, and the life that we're called to live. He said, our greatest fear should not be a failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter succeeding in things in life that don't really matter. And Paul's attitude is, thank you, God, that I'm in prison suffering for the thing that matters most. I'm succeeding at the only thing that matters most. And while Paul was in prison, here's what we know. We know that in Rome at that time, there was business being conducted there were business empires being built. There were acquisitions going on. There were stocks being traded, commodities being moved. There was political maneuvering going on. Somebody was starting a rise to power, maybe the next Caesar. There were people doing all kinds of things that outwardly appear very significant. But there was probably nobody in Rome, in reality, doing anything more significant than Paul was doing by being in prison for the gospel. Because what Paul was doing will echo through eternity. What everybody else was doing stopped the moment they died. It stopped the moment the business went belly up. It stopped the moment the funds disappeared. They left it all here. And in light of eternity, when they're asked what they accomplished, the real answer will be nothing. Nothing. Because where, where's your money now? Where's your business empire now but Paul lived for the glory of God and so what he did will echo through eternity and, and please hear me I'm not talking down business or success or wealth what I'm saying is Jesus needs to be the driving force he needs to be the center and if he's called you to do that then do it with all your might and do it for his glory and do it for his purposes and be great at it but don't be called to something else and pursue something completely meaningless and because other people tell you, wow, you're doing great. Don't buy into it. Listen to the voice of Jesus. And Paul had the Holy Spirit telling him all the time, you are right where I want you to be. Well done. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. A life lived for the glory of God 
is the only life of real significance. It's the only life of real significance. And I, I love the word significance because it just sums up living for something that really means something. And if you want to know the saddest analogy of this, I really believe. How many of us have talked about Steve Jobs in the last month? Almost nobody. He's a guy who revolutionized technology, created probably electronic devices that at least half of us have here today. And everybody talked about him when he died. And then it started coming out, he's kind of a jerk. (laughs) And a year from now, we're not gonna even be thinking about him. This guy built the most valuable business on planet Earth. They have more money and liquid assets than most countries amassed through their GDP in a decade. He accomplished all this. And, And what's it worth now? What's it worth? It's worth nothing. It's worth nothing. He succeeded at something that didn't really matter. It didn't really matter. So Paul's in prison, but he's living a life of significance. When Christ comes into your life, the definition of success changes completely. The only definition of success becomes, am I being obedient to what he's called me to do? That's a yes, no question. We love to answer that with kind of, right? Maybe, 70%, you know? But it's a yes, no question. Am I being obedient? Yes, you're a success. No, you're failing. Stop, be obedient. Start living a life of meaning. We're not living to hear other people say, wow, you're amazing. We're living to hear one thing. We're living to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what I want to hear more than anything else. More than anything else. I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, when my life is over. Paul actually says to the Ephesians that his suffering sufferings are their glory, their glory, meaning that his sufferings are for their benefit. Paul says this because he says, I'm going to show you what it looks like to have Christ on the inside. Paul is actually saying, watch me. This is what it looks like when Christ is on the inside of you. And he's thankful for the opportunity to model it for them. Do you want to be used by God in your life? If you want to be used by God, be prepared for a crushing. Be prepared for a crushing. Man, I, I'm pretty sure I could grow this church a lot faster if we didn't share things like that. <laughs> we just shared, you know, if you, if you want to be used by God, be prepared to be wealthy. Be prepared to be healthy. Be prepared to be wildly successful at everything you do. The truth is if you want to be used by God, you have to be prepared for a crushing because when a potter starts working with clay, he doesn't sit there, stroke it gently. What are you doing? I'm making a pot. Very slowly. It's not what he does. It's like, boom! Rolling pin, smash, 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 smash. Because the potter knows, he's like, see, the problem is this lump of clay thinks it's a lump of clay. But it's not a lump of clay, it's a pot. So I gotta teach this lump of clay that it's a pot, not a lump of clay. Boom, 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 boom. You go through this crushing so that you can become what God wants you to be. But I want you you to know that if it sounds unappealing, there's a much easier way. There's a much easier way. And the easier way is simply give up on becoming what God created you to be. Because here's what'll happen. Even in the church, nobody is gonna go, shame on you. 
Shame on you. In fact, if you give up on becoming what God's gonna be and just focus on yourself, you'll probably end up with more stuff that impresses a lot of people. You got a jet ski? Man, you must be walking with Jesus. Wow, I'm, I'm impressed. But if you wanna become what God wants you to be, there's gonna be a crushing. It's gonna be something you have to go through. And the thing is, if you don't do it, you'll know deep down the whole time, man, I'm, I'm not who God made me to be. I'm not who God made me to be. And you'll lie awake at night, reaching that place of I've done all this stuff, but so what? So what? I still can't answer yes to the question, are you what I made you to be? Have you become that? Have you walked in everything that I laid out for you to walk in? Because God's called all of us to do more amazing things than we could ever dream, ever imagine. What God is saying is please don't settle for substitutes. It's worth it. It's worth it. And Paul was happy in prison because even though he's in pain, he had that deep satisfaction that comes from knowing I am exactly where God wants me to be. And he is here with me now. And he's pleased with me. That's worth more than any level of comfort. It's worth more than any level of comfort. The invitation to follow Jesus is not an invitation to an easy life. Jesus didn't say, take up your Mai Tai and follow me. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. He said, if anyone wants to follow me, he must deny himself. Come and follow me. Jesus was very upfront, and I appreciate that about Jesus. Jesus didn't say, come and follow me. It'll, 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 it'll be good. It'll, it'll, yeah, be pretty good. He didn't say that. He just said, let me, let me tell you straight up. You're dead, okay? I'm offering you life. You're on a fast track to eternal separation and damnation. I'm offering you eternity and paradise in my presence. If you want to become what you were made to be, if you want to experience what it's like to be a part of something bigger than you could ever imagine, if you want to know what it's like to have the living God move through you and touch somebody else, if you want to know what that's like, come and follow me. There's a high price. It might cost you everything, but I'm worth it. I'm worth it. That's the invitation that Jesus offers. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul writes this. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now if we are afflicted, <clears throat> it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast, because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation. A.W. Tozer said, before God can use a man greatly, he must allow him to be hurt deeply. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul is sharing the degree to which you suffer 
is the degree to which God comforts you. There's not a fixed measure of comfort God offers you and says, I hope this is enough. As the struggle, as the trial increases, so does the comfort of God. God will meet it with the same intensity of comfort every single time. This is why you read the incredible stories of of missionaries and Christians being able to endure things that we, we can't even fathom for the gospel. And the reason is that the comfort of Jesus rose up to meet the trial that they were in and carried them through it and empowered them to endure. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. They will be comforted. And when he says blessed, Jesus is saying, listen, it is better to be mourning and to experience the comfort of God than it is to be happy and have nothing of God. It is better to be mourning and have the comfort of God, the presence of God with you, than it is to have everything in your life be right and have God be distant from you. It's better. Paul had come to understand that you can't really comfort somebody like Jesus until you've been comforted yourself by Jesus. You can't comfort somebody like Jesus until you yourself have been comforted by Jesus. You can't console someone who's suffering. You can't really encourage them unless you've been encouraged and comforted and consoled by that same Jesus. Paul knew what it was to suffer Paul knew what it was to be consoled by Jesus. And he experienced Jesus carrying him through his darkest times. So when Paul told other believers, Jesus will carry you through this. He will comfort you. Paul says, I know what I'm saying is true. Paul says, I'm not saying this and hoping that God will come through for you. I'm saying this knowing that God will come through for you. Just like he came through for me. This isn't a cop-out. This isn't like, oh, I'm sorry you're suffering. God will get you through. Here's a card with a picture of some wildlife to make you feel better. This was Paul speaking from experience. Listen, the best thing I can tell you right now is that if you let him, Jesus will comfort you. He'll carry you. He'll get you through this. And I believe that with all my heart because I've experienced that personally. It's what Paul is saying. And they knew he wasn't just blowing smoke because Paul could take his shirt off and say, look at the scars on my back. Look at the scars on my back. I know what it's like. I've been there. And I'm here today telling you God is faithful. He'll get you through it. He'll comfort you. And that same process plays out again and again and again in our own lives. Any one of us who's in a trial or a crushing right now could look at another person and say, listen, this is for your benefit that I'm going through this. Because when I come out of this, I'm gonna have been comforted by God. I'm gonna know the intimate consolation of Jesus. And I'm gonna be able to encourage you when you go through your trial. It's for your benefit, it's for your benefit, it's for your benefit. And that's the ministry that God has called every single one of us to. He's called us to be honest about some very hard things that he's carried us through so that we can encourage other people and say, listen, let me, let me tell you a story. Let me show you some of my scars. Let me show you, let me tell you what I've been through. I've been through this. And I'm not sharing this to tell you I'm a tough guy. I'm sharing you to tell us that Jesus will carry you. He's carried me. And we're gonna be having a conversation a year from now where you will be saying God is faithful. He's faithful. 
So why don't you just start saying that right now in the middle of your crushing. Here's what I know. God is faithful. And I know I'll be saying the same thing a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now. I got really tired of putting my foot in my mouth in my trials and my crushings and saying, listen, maybe, um, maybe this is the time God doesn't come through. Really? Really? <laughs> like, really? Maybe this is the time God doesn't come through. Maybe, maybe this is the time that God just abandons me and lets me die uh, for his glory or something like that. Really? It's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. You're going to end up saying he was faithful. He was faithful. So I just decided, you know, I'm, I'm going to stop putting my foot in my mouth and saying he's not faithful in the middle of my trial. Because I know that later on I'm going to be saying, yeah, he's faithful. I feel pretty stupid for thinking he wasn't in the middle of that. When I look back and he's always been faithful. Always been faithful. And he always will be. When you're in your season of crushing, you'll either become bitter towards God and experience none of his comfort. Or you'll realize that he's shaping you. You will cry out to him to comfort you. And you will be comforted. You will be comforted. And you'll be what Paul was, an example of what it looks like when Christ is on the inside. That's really what people are looking at, isn't it? People aren't looking at your life and saying, wow, what a difference Jesus makes. Everything was going great in their life, and now because they have Jesus in their life, everything is still going great. What people are looking at is, hey, when the heat is on, when life squeezes you, when life crushes you, is anything different going to come out of you than is going to come out of me? When there's stress and strife in your marriage, when a partner walks out unexpectedly, when a job falls through, when the pressure's on, people want to know what's different about you. What's different? That's what people are really looking at. That's the greatest testimony that we have is that Christ in us makes a difference. You know, I, I believe that Paul led so many people to Christ while he was in prison, not because he was a great speaker, but because he handled his crushings so differently, so differently to everybody else. In Philippi, Paul is literally singing while he's being tortured. And at first, they're probably thinking, this guy has a few screws loose, you know. He's a couple of apples short of a picnic basket. Something's not right with this guy. But when you live with someone day in and day out, one week passes, two weeks passes, three weeks pass, you begin to realize, no, that this is really who he is. We're not going to break him. We're not going to break him. How is that possible? How is that? Po you're in prison. You're being tortured. You got no hope in this situation. How is it possible that you're full of hope? That's when Paul says, because Christ is in me. The hope of glory is in me. That's what's different. That's what people are really looking at. And as a church, we exist to reveal Jesus in every area of our lives. That's why we exist. And this church, my desire is that this church would really be based on a question. And that question is, what would our lives look like if we really believed the Bible? What would our lives look like? And I think 
that a lot of people are turned off because they, they come to church or they know believers and they know what Jesus says. And they look at our lives and they say, but uh, they're not connecting. So you believe, you Christians, in a Jesus that supplies all your needs. But you're trembling with fear if you have to trust him with your finances. See, see you guys say you believe in a Jesus who will get you through everything. But you crack under pressure just like the rest of us. You think the world's ending just like the rest of us. You, you, you Christians say Jesus has brought you from death into life. And yet when you sing about him in your churches, you look like you're barely staying awake. So the question that we want to see drive our churches, man, what would a church look like if we really believed what the Bible said? What would the church look like if, if, if when we're talking after church, somebody said, man, I'm sick. We didn't say, well, take something. <laughs> what, 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 if we, what if we said, well, well, we're believers, so let me pray for you right now because that's what the Bible says we're supposed to do and we believe it. Let's just do it. Hey, I'm facing a crisis. Let's pray. Hey, I'm facing a crisis. I've been praying about it and there hasn't been a breakthrough. Well, let's fast. That's what we do. That's what the Bible says. Just imagine what a church could be if we were everything that was in the Bible, if we really believed it and started living that out. It would be so radical. People would have no other explanation other than God, God's doing something there. He's doing something there. And I want to be a part of it. I want to be a part of it. In 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7, it says, We now have this treasure in clay jars. This makes it clear that our great power is from God and not from ourselves. When we allow ourselves to be comforted and consoled by Jesus during our sufferings, we're able to endure them in an unnatural way, in a supernatural way. And that's what draws people to Jesus. So here's what I want us to take from God's word today. Whatever you face in this life, you can choose to walk in these truths the truth that Jesus is greater. Whatever it is, Jesus is greater. The truth that he's already won, and therefore so have you, because you are in Christ. The issue you're facing will not beat you. Jesus is in you. He's already won the victory. What Jesus is doing is he's saying, I want you to have the experience of fighting the battle so that you can understand what it's like for me to fight on your behalf. So that when I call you to take a step of faith, you'll do it because you'll know I'm with you. He wants, to, he wants us to experience victory. That's why he lets us go through it. He wants us to experience victory. Hold on to the truth that Jesus will comfort and console you. And hold on to the truth that letting him do that will make you a, for, a more effective minister for Christ and will glorify Christ to the world around you. Anybody in here, you want to be used by God, you want to be a minister, you want to be in any type of ministry, which we're all called to do, get ready for a crushing. That is the school of ministry. That's the school of ministry. And there are a lot of people who when the crushing comes, say, man, forget this, forget this, forget this. I can go to a Bible study, I can, I can go to a class, but when the crushing comes, man, I don't want any of this. Jesus says, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. But you're going to see things. 
that are going to blow your mind if you'll do that. You won't believe if you'll follow me where we'll end up walking. If you're following me, you can walk through the fires of hell and not be singed because you're walking with me. Let's go. Let's go. So if you need to be comforted today, ask Jesus to comfort you. Ask him to comfort you. Take communion during this next time of worship. And as you do, remember, Jesus knows. He didn't exempt himself from suffering. He knows. He knows what it's like to be alone. He knows what it's like to hurt. He knows what it's like to fear. I was reading with my kids last night. When Jesus begins to realize that his, his hour is coming, he even tells his audience, he says, my hour is almost here. So what shall I say? Shall I say, God, take this from me? And he says, no. Father, glorify your name. And I love that because Jesus in his greatest moment literally shouts out, Father, glorify your name. And in John, it says a voice came from heaven. God says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. So I want to encourage you, let Christ comfort you. Let him comfort you and he will be glorified in what you're going through. If you feel like you've been bitter and distant from Jesus because of your sufferings, let him console you. Let your suffering drive you to him, not pull you away from him. If you feel like you're facing something that you can't defeat, spend some time thanking Jesus that he's already won the victory. And what you're facing will not beat you. You're nothing, but Christ is everything. And if Christ who is everything is in you, then all things are possible because Christ is in you.